Chapter 9, Parts 1, 2, and 3 of War in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. War in the Air by H. G. Wells. Chapter 9, Parts 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 9 on Goat Island. Part 1. The whack of a bullet on the rocks beside him reminded him that he was a visible object and wearing at least portions of a German uniform. It drove him into the trees again, and for a time he dodged and dropped and sought cover like a chick hiding among reeds from imaginary hawks. Beaten, he whispered. Beaten and done for. Chinese! yellow chaps chasing him. At last he came to rest in a clump of bushes near a locked-up and deserted refreshment shed within view of the American side. They made a sort of hole and harbor for him. They bent completely overhead. He looked across the rapids, but the firing had ceased now altogether, and everything seemed quiet. The Asiatic aeroplane had moved from its former position above the suspension bridge, was motionless now above Niagara City shadowing all that district about the powerhouse which had been the scene of the land fight. The monster had an air of quiet and assured predominance, and from its stern it trailed, serene and ornamental, a long streaming flag, the red, black, and yellow of the Great Alliance, the Sunrise, and the Dragon. Beyond to the east, at a much higher level, hung a second consort, and Bert, presently gathering courage, wriggled out and craned his neck to find another still airship against the sunset in the north. "'Gaw!' he said. "'Beaten and chased! My God!' The fighting, it seemed at first, was quite over in Niagara City, though a German flag was still flying from one shattered house. A white sheet was hoisted above the powerhouse, and this remained flying all through the events that followed. But presently came a sound of shots— and then German soldiers running. They disappeared among the houses, and then came two engineers in blue shirts and trousers hotly pursued by three Japanese swordsmen. The foremost of the two fugitives was a shapely man, and ran lightly and well. The second was a sturdy little man, and rather fat. He ran comically in leaps and bounds, with his plump arms bent up by his side and his head thrown back. The pursuers ran with uniforms and dark thin metal and leather headdresses. The little man stumbled, and Bert gasped, realizing a new horror in war. The foremost swordsman won three strides on him, and was near enough to slash at him and miss as he spurted. A dozen yards they ran, and then the swordsman slashed again, and Bert could hear across the waters a little sound like the moo of an elfin cow as a fat little man fell forward. Slash went the swordsman, and slash at something on the ground that tried to save itself with ineffectual hands. "'Oh, I can't!' cried Bert, near blubbering and staring with starting eyes. The swordsman slashed a fourth time, and went on as his fellows came up after the better runner. The hindmost swordsman stopped and turned back. He had perceived some movement, perhaps, but at any rate he stood, and ever and again slashed at the fallen body." Ooh, ooh! groaned Bert at every slash, and shrank closer into the bushes, and became very still. 
Presently came a sound of shots from the town, and then everything was quiet. Everything. Even the hospital. He saw presently little figures sheathing swords come out from the houses and walk to the debris of the flying machines the bomb had destroyed. Others appeared wheeling undamaged aeroplanes upon their wheels as men might wheel bicycles, and sprang into the saddles and flapped into the air. A string of three airships appeared far away in the east and flew towards the zenith. The one that hung low above Niagara City came still lower and dropped a rope ladder to pick up men from the powerhouse. For a long time he watched the further happenings in Niagara City as a rabbit might watch a meet. He saw men going from building to building to set fire to them, as he presently realized, and he heard a series of dull detonations from the wheel pit of the powerhouse. Some similar business went on among the works on the Canadian side. Meanwhile, more and more airships appeared, and many more flying machines, until, at last, it seemed to him nearly a third of the Asiatic fleet had reassembled. He watched them from his bush, cramped but immovable, watched them gather and range themselves and signal and pick up men, until at last they sailed away towards the glowing sunset, going to the great Asiatic rendezvous. Above the oil wells of Cleveland, they dwindled and passed away, leaving him alone. So far as he could tell, the only living man in a world of ruin and strange loneliness almost beyond describing. He watched them recede and vanish. He stood gaping after them. Gah! he said at last, like one who rouses himself from a trance. It was far more than any personal desolation extremity that flooded his soul. It seemed to him, indeed, that this must be the sunset of his race. Part 2. He did not at first envisage his own plight in definite and comprehensible terms. Things happened to him so much of late, his own efforts had counted for so little, that he had become passive and planless. His last scheme had been to go around the coast of England as a desert dervish, giving refined entertainment to his fellow creatures. Fate had seen fit to direct him to other destinies, had hurried him from point to point, and dropped him at last upon this little wedge of rock between the cataracts. It did not instantly occur to him that now it was his turn to play. He had a singular feeling that all must end as a dream ends, that presently, surely, he would be back in the world of Grubb and Edna and Bun Hill that this roar, this glittering presence of incessant water, would be drawn aside as a curtain is drawn aside after a holiday lantern show, and old familiar, customary things reassume their sway. It would be interesting to tell people how he had seen Niagara, and then Kurt's words came into his head. People torn away from the people they care for, homes smashed, creatures full of life, and memories and peculiar little gifts, torn to pieces, starved, and spoiled. He wondered, half incredulous, if that was indeed true. It was so hard to realize it. Out beyond there, was it possible that Tom and Jessica were also in some dire extremity? That the little green grocer's shop was no longer standing open, with Jessica serving respectfully, warming Tom's ear in sharp asides, or punctually sending out the goods? He tried to think what day of the week it was, and found he had lost his reckoning. Perhaps it was Sunday. If so, were they going to church, or were they hiding? Perhaps in bushes? What had happened to the landlord? 
the butcher, and to Butteridge, and all those people on Demchurch Beach. Something he knew had happened to London, a bombardment. But who had bombarded? Were Tom and Jessica, too, being chased by strange brown men with long bare swords and evil eyes? He thought of various possible aspects of affliction. But presently, one phase ousted all the others. Were they getting much to eat? The question haunted him, obsessed him. If one was very hungry, would one eat rats? It dawned upon him that a peculiar misery that oppressed him was not so much anxiety and patriotic sorrow as hunger. Of course he was hungry. He reflected and turned his steps towards the little refreshment shed that stood near the end of the ruined bridge. Ought to be something. He strolled round it once or twice, and then attacked the shutters with his pocket-knife, reinforced presently by a wooden stake he found conveniently near. At last he got a shutter to give, and tore it back and stuck in his head. Grub, he remarked. Anyhow. Leastways. He got at the inside fastening of the shutter, and had presently this establishment open for his exploration. He found several sealed bottles of sterilized milk, much mineral water, two tins of biscuits, and a crock of very stale cakes, cigarettes in great quantity but very dry some rather dry oranges, nuts, some tins of canned meat and fruit, and plates and knives and forks and glasses sufficient for several score of people. There was also a zinc locker, but he was unable to negotiate the padlock of this. "'Shan't starve,' said Bert, for a bit, anyhow. He sat on the vendor's seat and regaled himself with biscuits and milk, and felt for a moment quite contented. "'Quite restful,' he muttered, munching and glancing about him restlessly. "'After what I been through.' "'Crikey! What a day! Oh, what a day!' Wonder took possession of him. "'Gaw!' he cried. "'What a fight it's been! Smashing up the poor fellers! Ed Long! The airships! The flyers and all! I wonder what happened to the Zeppelin!' And that chap, Kurt, I wonder what happened to him. He was a good sort of chap, was Kurt. Some phantom of imperial solicitude floated through his mind. India, he said. A more practical interest arose. I wonder if there's anything to open one of these tins of corned beef. Part 3 After he had feasted, Bert lit a cigarette and sat meditative for a time. "'Wonder where Grub is,' he said. "'I do wonder that. "'Wonder if any of them wonder about me.' He reverted to his own circumstances. "'To say I shall have to stop on this island for some time.' He tried to feel at his ease and secure, but presently the indefinable restlessness of the social animal in solitude distressed him. He began to want to look over his shoulder, and, as a corrective, roused himself to explore the rest of the island. It was only very slowly that he began to realize the peculiarities of his position, to perceive that the breaking down of the arch between Green Island and the mainland had cut him off completely from the world. Indeed, it was only when he came back to where the foreend of the Hohenzollern lay like a stranded ship and was contemplating the shattered bridge that this dawned upon him. 
Even then, it came with no sort of shock to his mind, a fact among a number of other extraordinary and unmanageable facts. He stared at the shattered cabins of the Hohenzollern and its widow's garment of disheveled silk for a time, but without any idea of its containing any living thing, it was also twisted and smashed and entirely upside down. Then, for a while, he gazed at the evening sky. A cloud haze was now appearing, and not an airship was in sight. A swallow flew by and snapped some invisible victim. Like a dream, he repeated. Then, for a time, the rapids held his mind. Roaring. It keeps on roaring and splashing always and always. Keeps on... At last, his interests became personal. Wonder what I ought to do now, he reflected. Not an idea, he said. He was chiefly conscious that a fortnight ago he had been in Bun Hill, with no idea of travel in his mind, and that now he was between the falls of Niagara amidst the devastation and ruins of the greatest air fight in the world, and that in the interval he had been across France, Belgium, Germany, England, Ireland, and a number of other countries, it was an interesting thought and suitable for conversation, but of no great practical utility. "'Wonder how I can get off this,' he said. "'Wonder if there is a way out. If not, rummy!' Further reflection decided, "'I believe I got myself in a bit of a ole coming over that bridge. Anyhow, got me out of the way of them Japanesey chaps. Wouldn't have taken them long to cut my throat.' No. Still. He resolved to return to the point of Luna Island. For a long time he stood without stirring, scrutinizing the Canadian shore and the wreckage of hotels and houses and the fallen trees of the Victoria Park, pink now in the light of sundown. Not a human being was perceptible in that scene of headlong destruction. Then he came back to the American side of the island, crossed close to the crumpled aluminum wreckage of the Hohenzollern to Green Islet, and scrutinized the hopeless breach in the further bridge and the water that boiled beneath it. Toward Buffalo there was still much smoke, and near the position of the Niagara Railway Station the houses were burning vigorously. Everything was deserted now. Everything was still. One little abandoned thing lay on a transverse path between town and road, a crumpled heap of clothes with sprawling limbs. "'Have a look around,' said Bert, and, taking a path that ran through the middle of the island, he presently discovered the wreckage of the two Asiatic aeroplanes that had fallen out of the struggle that ended the Hohenzollern. With the first he found the wreckage of an aeronaut, too. The machine had evidently dropped vertically and was badly knocked about amidst a lot of smashed branches in a clump of trees. Its bent and broken wings and shattered stays sprawled amidst new splintered wood and its forepeak stuck into the ground. The aeronaut dangled weirdly, head downward among the leaves and branches some yards away, and Bert only discovered him as he turned from the aeroplane. In the dusky evening light and stillness, for the sun had gone now and the wind had altogether fallen, this inverted yellow face was anything but a tranquilizing object to discover suddenly a couple of yards away. A broken branch had run clean through the man's thorax, and he hung, so stabbed, looking limp and absurd. 
In his hand he still clutched, with a grip of death, a short light rifle. For some time Bert stood very still, inspecting this thing. Then he began to walk away from it, looking constantly back at it. Presently, in an open glade, he came to a stop. Gaw, he whispered. I don't like dead bodies somehow. I'd almost rather that chap was alive. He would not go along the path athwart which the Chinaman hung. He felt he would rather not have trees round him any more, and that it would be more comfortable to be quite close to the sociable splash and uproar of the rapids. He came upon the second aeroplane in a clear grassy space by the side of the streaming water, and it seemed scarcely damaged at all. It looked as though it had floated down into a position of rest. It lay on its side with one wing in the air. There was no aeronaut near it, dead or alive. There it lay, abandoned, with the water lapping about its long tail. Bert remained a little aloof from it for a long time, looking into the gathering shadows among the trees, in the expectation of another Chinaman alive or dead. Then, very cautiously, he approached the machine and stood regarding its widespread vans, its big steering wheel and empty saddle. He did not venture to touch it. "'I wish that other chap wasn't there,' he said. "'I do wish he wasn't there.' He saw, a few yards away, something bobbing about in an eddy that spun within a projecting head of rock. As it went round, it seemed to draw him unwillingly towards it. "'What could it be?' "'Blow,' said Bert. "'It's another of them.' It held him. He told himself that it was the other aeronaut that had been shot in the fight and fallen out of the saddle as he strove to land. He tried to go away, and then it occurred to him that he might get a branch or something and push this rotating object out into the stream. That would leave him with only one dead body to worry about. Perhaps he might get along with one. He hesitated, and then with a certain emotion forced himself to do this. He went towards the bushes and cut himself a wand, and returned to the rocks and clambered out to a corner between the eddy and the stream. By that time the sunset was over and the bats were abroad, and he was wet with perspiration. He prodded the floating blue-clad thing with his wand, failed, tried again successfully as it came round, and as it went out into the stream it turned over. The light gleamed on golden hair, and... It was Kurt. It was Kurt, white and dead and very calm. There was no mistaking him. There was still plenty of light for that. The stream took him, and he seemed to compose himself in its swift grip as one who stretches himself to rest. White-faced he was now, and all the color gone out of him. A feeling of infinite distress swept over Bert as the body swept out of sight towards the fall. Kurt! he cried. Kurt! I didn't mean to. Kurt! Don't leave me here. Don't leave me. Loneliness and desolation overwhelmed him. He gave way. He stood on the rock in the evening light, weeping and wailing passionately like a child. It was as though some link that had held him to all these things had broken and gone. He was afraid like a child in a lonely room, shamelessly afraid. The twilight was closing about him. The trees were full now of strange shadows. All the things about him became strange and unfamiliar, with that subtle queerness one feels oftenest in dreams. Oh, God! 
I can't stand this, he said, and crept back from the rocks to the grass and crouched down, and suddenly wild sorrow for the death of Kurt, Kurt the brave, Kurt the kindly, came to his help, and he broke from whimpering to weeping. He ceased to crouch. He sprawled upon the grass and clenched an impotent fist. This war, he cried, this blasted foolery of a war. Oh, Kurt, Lieutenant Kurt. I done, he said. I done. I've had all I want, and more than I want. The world's all rot, and there ain't no sense in it. The night's coming. If he comes after me, he can't come after me. He can't. If he comes after me, I'll throw myself into the water. Presently, he was talking again in a low undertone. There ain't nothing to be afraid of, really. It's just imagination. Poor old Kurt. He thought it would happen. Prevision-like. He never gave me that letter or told me who the lady was. It's like what he said. People tore away from everything they belonged to. Everywhere. Exactly like what he said. Here I am, cast away, thousands of miles from Edna, or Grubb, or any of my lot, like a plant tore up by the roots. And every war's been like this, only I hadn't the sense to understand it. Always. All sorts of holes and corners chaps have died in, and people hadn't the sense to understand, hadn't the sense to feel it and stop it. Thought war was fine. My God! Dear old Edna! She was a fair bit of all right, she was. That time we had a boat at Kingston. I bet I'll see her again yet. Won't be my fault if I don't. End of chapter 9 Parts 1, 2, and 3 Recording by William Tomcoe